the state of American music. These are the stories of the music that emanates from all corners of the great state of Tennessee. Easily the most musical place on the planet. The forgotten, the famous, the curious regardless of genre, era, or styles. From the banks of the muddy Mississippi, stopping on Beale, past Music Row, through Lower Broadway, and up in the hills and getting down on the holler. So raise a glass of sippin' whiskey and take a ride with us and explore the music from the stages and studios in the world's greatest local music scene. This is the music made of by and in Tennessee on this episode of Journeyman. So welcome back to the suicide of Johnny Ace. Today is August 7th, uh, 2019. Uh, and generally, I wouldn't necessarily put a timestamp on uh, when we record the episode because it's not going to come out for quite some time. Uh, but it's really fascinating. Uh, in between episodes, uh, which we just recorded, we just finished moments ago. Uh, took a quick bathroom smoke and whiskey break. Um, we just finished the last episode, which was really harrowing, very somber uh, and uh, hard to listen to uh, about a young man who accidentally, we think, killed himself uh, at the height of his fame, uh, Johnny Ace. And while we were sitting here just BSing between uh, takes, uh, Casey had read something that just popped up on his phone, uh, and then Seth came out and said the same thing that David Berman uh, from the Silver Jews uh, had died. How and why we don't know yet, uh, but we thought it'd be appropriate to talk about an uh, artist that has ties to Tennessee um, at a really weird, raw time uh, in our story. Uh, Casey didn't really know much about the Silver Jews, and it was actually a, a point of conversation uh, for a future artist for us to cover uh, for reasons that will become self-evident down the road later. Just the, the tone of this project is to cover music that's made in the state of Tennessee. Um, and I don't think you can get really much different than Johnny Ace and the Silver Jews. Uh, but Seth, you've got some... You know this guy? I've met him a few times. Yeah. Um, he's... A friend of friends, and I know a few folks that have played with him in the past. And uh, the last time I saw him was Thanksgiving, twenty eighteen. Okay. Um, at a a friendsgiving, and so no, I didn't really know him, but I I did meet him a few times and saw him at shows and things. And uh, an eccentric character to be sure, and um, one whose reputation precedes him in terms of contribution to rock and roll. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, as a songwriter, but mainly as a lyricist, um, someone who was definitely held in high, high esteem for his lyrics, um, had released a, a, a best-selling book of poetry and um, had just released uh, a new album, uh, Purple Mountains, and was about to go on tour. Um, so it's... Uh, this week, right? Yeah, it was just about to start. Um, so... Yeah, it's uh, you know, it hits as heavy as it it can without it being someone that you're very close to or 
obviously I, you know, the people that I know are, have been close to him for years. And, uh, yeah, it's a really sad thing, especially for a guy who has had struggles and had seemed to have emerged from that with maybe a new lease on his creativity and his music career. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, like you said, we don't know what happened yet. Um, it's tragic regardless. Yeah. You know, um, he'd been in town for a long time, you know, and it, it's interesting to me cause I've never met him and I have a couple of silver juice records and I know some people that have worked with the band and a lot of friends of friends. And, you know, I mean, they were a pretty big band in, in indie circles, right? Like yes, they did a, a lot um, <clears throat> and they were well-respected and silver juice um, being an indie band based out of Nashville for, I don't know, 15, 20, I don't know how long, but, you know, a long time before Nashville was what it was, or, you know, it was a, a bit of an anomaly in some regards, right? Uh, and so it was one of those sort of shining points that you can say, wow, this is cool. There's a really cool dude making cool music who lives here in town and, you know, lives that life and works and, and um, does cool stuff that's not music row, you know, and, and makes a living out of it. And he chose to make our home his home. Um, like, so we don't know what happened. Um, I know what I'm going to be listening to next week, right? Uh, but yeah, you know, our thoughts go out to his family and his friends. And, you know, this is not an insignificant thing. Uh, the timing is absolutely appalling for, you know, uh, his career and where he is. The ironic coincidences based off of when we're recording here is astronomical um, and the grand scheme of things means nothing to anybody but it's something to the three of us considering we came off a really heavy episode last time uh, talking about the challenges of this life um, and sad but back to Johnny Ace immediately in the early hours of December 26th the press put out the story of Johnny's death. It was broadcast in his hometown of Memphis in the wee hours of the morning, the day after Christmas. The remaining Beale Streeters and immediate friends, they went to the club handy and they went to mourn together. Now, the touring show had dates and they were booked through that week, through the New Year holiday and of course beyond. Evelyn Johnson, as the booking agent, had to call and cancel each of these shows. Several times, the people on the other end said, just send the rest of the show up. Without him? They just wanted the band? Willie May, just the band. Give us something. Clearly, they and Willie May were in no position to get back on the road and perform. She claimed they were zombies drinking heavily. When Gatemouth Brown later found out about Johnny's death, he said, well, better him than me. Back to the question of Russian roulette. Those on the scene claimed that Johnny looked at the gun before firing it to his head, but not spinning it. It was a seven-shot model, and he could have seen by a quick glance if there was a bullet in either chamber two 
or chamber three, but he had no way of knowing what was in the other chambers. So he couldn't know the odds that pulling the trigger would fire. Some people claim there's a trick to winning at this deadly game and that after spinning the chamber with a single bullet loaded, basic physics demands that the bulleted chamber would actually pull down gravitationally to the bottom and not be loading. Assuming that the gun was properly oiled, cared for, well-built, and in working condition, that may or may not be the case. With a suicide gun, a Saturday Night Special with a junk gun, with Johnny Ace, it seems unlikely that the gun was well cared for. Johnny Otis claimed to put the incident in context. Ace was waving the gun around and fired his girlfriend's buddy, Mary Carter, and this young lady's boyfriend, Joe Hamilton, in the room says, wait a minute, man. Don't wave that gun at my girl. You might be Johnny Ace, but I don't appreciate that shit. You want to wave it? Point it at somebody? Point it at yourself. Otis claims that Ace that embarrassingly points the gun to his own head, pulling the trigger. Johnny Board was on stage at the time playing piano. He gives a similar opinion. B.B. King later stated, Ace had guts, but don't ever dare Johnny to do something dangerous because the boy would up and do it. Finally, that did him in. So here we are, a young rock and roll star, just as rock and roll and R&B for that matter, being born, he's cut down in his prime by his own hand. At the height of his popularity, in between sets at a show on Christmas. Could there be a more dramatic death? I don't think so. What would have happened to Johnny Ace if he lived? Would he continue his slow slide down the charts, putting out fair to middling hits? So Don Roby didn't really see any return on that investment. Yeah, it's like, you know, when you're when you're label mates with someone like Big Mama Thornton and you see that level of talent, there's gotta be a part of you that says She's, this is, she's going to be the focus of their attention at the label. He's putting out schmaltzy stuff. Yeah, I mean, would he have further slid into irrelevancy? Would he have transitioned to rock and roll? I mean, he was right there at the right time, at the right place. Would he come back to Memphis, make records with Sun, ride Elvis's coattails, continue being someone in the sphere of B.B. King? You know, he had made himself less marketable, though. I mean, one of the things he had going for him was his good looks and his charm and, and those types of things. And living hard took its toll on him in a short amount of time. And, you know, that was the problem they had with Big Mama Thornton. You know, she didn't want to mm -hmm. play the lady. She didn't want to do the things that they thought would make her more marketable, more appealing to a wider audience. And so, you know, Johnny had that early on. He had... Mm -hmm. He had more of that than he had songs, for sure. Maybe not talent, but songs. Yeah. You know, maybe he did feel like he was at the end of his music career before anyone else realized it. I mean, maybe he thought that was all he had in the tank and that was contributing to his depression. Of course, this is speculation here, but... Yeah, no, that's yeah. a great point. But, you know, maybe he could feel it. Yeah. It's tough when you don't see musically what you're going to do next and you're just, you know... Like you said, it's speculation, but 
um, he's obviously, he had a lot of demons and they were starting to take the front stage in his life. You know, if it hadn't been, you know, playing Russian roulette, would it have been a James Dean thing or something? You know, who knows where it would have, it would, it probably would have bubbled up in some form or other at some point in him doing something stupid. Yeah, he was doing other dangerous things yeah. besides playing with a gun. Right. This is not the only thing that... And it seems like the people around him, you know, I, I, maybe this was just their hindsight being twenty twenty, but guys like the comments that you just read with B.B. King and, and Johnny Otis and Gatemouth Brown, it seems like they know that they're not surprised. None of them are surprised that this happened, right. really. So that's telling, too. Mm-hmm. So in this exact moment and in, in this e- horrifying scene, uh, obviously quite later, James Salem, the writer of the late great Johnny Ace, succinctly wrote, Johnny Ace the man was dead, but Johnny Ace the legend had just been born. As we've constantly been reminded through this story, Johnny Ace was a black star. Despite his huge success and his national profile, few in the mid-1950s outside of the black community even had a passing familiarity to his work or even his name. R&B was still an indie market and with small regional players by the end of 1953, the Negro market, aka race records, only accounted for less than 6% of American record sales. So sure, It made sense that no one had heard much about him outside of his core market, his core appeal. He could put 3,500 butts in seats and nearly sell out an arena on Christmas Day, but it's still relatively small in terms of the pop music culture and that market as a whole across the country. White press, especially Southern white press, didn't cover really any news from the black community at all. That was for the colored newspapers to talk about. That was their problem, their people, their issues. Not for us. But the absolute sensationalism of this story caused even the New York Times to cover it, albeit buried deep into the newspaper. The Times states this. Houston, Texas, December 26. A Memphis, Tennessee band leader was shot to death playing Russian roulette last night while holding a pretty girl on his lap during a dressing room party. The police said John Alexander, 26 years old, leader and featured singer of Johnny Ace's band, died at the height of a big Christmas night dance in the city auditorium. It wasn't clear to readers of the newspaper at the time that Ace and Alexander were the same person, And to put a finer point on it, when it was tagged for reference later under the newspaper system, they didn't tag it Johnny Ace, they didn't tag it R&B, they didn't tag it John Alexander, it was tagged Russian Roulette. It's a primitive hashtag? (laughs) That's how they catalog stuff? I guess so. I mean, you know, you think maybe microfiche, I remember that, but you know, you got to find a way to look about what stories were according to what, so... Mm -hmm. Well, again, it was the sensational manner of the story. I mean, that's no one would ever search for Johnny Ace. Yeah, someone might be intrigued by Russian roulette. Yeah, the, the the newspaper might have not have known that they were the same people, let alone the readers. Right, exactly. 
So that was a small, unimportant story to the traditional press. It was clearly a huge deal to the nation's <clears throat> black press, with black papers across the nation retelling the story with the full implication to how it mattered to their readers. Pittsburgh Courier said, cards stacked against Johnny Ace in suicide. The Cleveland Call and Post said, the singer lived as he died amid a riot of gals, guns, and gaiety. And a number of Cleveland girls are trembling in their boots at the terrifying thought that they barely missed being a party to and possible victim of his penchants for playing Russian roulette. To be perfectly frank, if I had to go down, guns, girls, and partying hard actually sounds like a pretty good way to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so Pittsburgh Courier and all your bullshit hyperbole, it sounds better than it was. The body was shipped via rail from Texas back to Memphis for his family to recover and take Johnny home one last time. The funeral was held January 2nd, 1955, over a week after his death. One benefit of the week-long delay was for motherfucking Don Roby to get his promo man to document, spin, and push the details of this grisly death at this time to all of the press. They tried to push the whole mourning process as well, with notes out to the press on the funeral size, with photos of Roby and Evelyn Johnson getting off a plane in Memphis. Cutline story, news release, to be released immediately. Final note in the spiraling entertainment career of a singer band leader, John M. Johnny Ace Alexander Jr., was sounded last Saturday at Claiborne Temple AME Church in Memphis, Tennessee, home of the Peacock Recording Artist. With about 4,500 relatives, friends, fans, and others of the entertainment world present. Out of towners in Memphis for the funeral of the 26-year-old singer who lost to Russian roulette in a dressing room while playing a Christmas Day dance in the city auditorium of Houston, Texas, included Don D. Roby, owner Peacock Records, and Evelyn Johnson, owner of Buffalo Booking Agency. Mr. Roby and Associates worked closely with Ace's family in arrangements for the funeral, which, excluding the one in October for political leaders E.H. Crump, was probably Memphis's biggest in recent years. The well-known Reverend Dwight Gatemouth Moore of Birmingham, Alabama, appeared on the formal services program. Claiborne Temple, which seats 2,000, could not hold the overflow crowd. Accompanying the picture in the upper right, it said, Evelyn Johnson and Don Roby arrive at Municipal Airport where they were met by Andrew Mitchell, Memphis promoter. Accompanying the picture in the lower left, members of the Johnny Ace Band leave the church with body. Including among the pallbearers was Harold Connor, who was reportedly being groomed to front the Johnny Ace Aggregation. Roby wanted to have the services not at the church that Johnny grew up. Though his home AME pastor was in attendance and did deliver a eulogy, he did not want to have the services in one of the small, poor, rural churches that Johnny's father pastored in the Baptist tradition, but he wanted to have the services in the 2,000-seat Claiborne AME Temple, the largest AME church in town. They're still trying to get butts in seats. 
Of course, the services was at overflow capacity. Pallbearers included Little Junior Parker, Roscoe Gordon, among others, with the honorary pallbearers being, of fucking course, Don Roby, but also Evelyn Johnson, Willie Mae Thornton, Duke Staff, B.B. King, and members of the band. Which, in hindsight, is pretty cool. The White Papers in Houston printed a story all about the events, but both White Papers in Johnny's hometown of Memphis never said a word. I'm looking at you, Commercial Appeal. WDIA, where a lot of this story got started, honored the dead local boy after the funeral by playing Johnny's song on the air. But Johnny's mother called into the station and forbade them from playing his songs on the air as a tribute during the services on the day they were honoring him since she didn't want him associated with secular music. Originally, Don Roby wanted the services to be held in the huge Memphis megachurch that doubled as a convention center where MLK had recently spoke. But he wouldn't fund any of the needed funds to book the venue, and Johnny's family, of course, could not afford it. His mother was using a modest life insurance policy that she had still kept on Johnny to pay for the services, but clearly it was too modest for Roby's biggest payday. There was a lot of back and forth between Roby, Johnny's mother, his sisters, his estranged wife over who would or could pay for Roby's version of a grand memorial service. Johnny's family assumed that Johnny was flush with cash. Don't forget that not that long ago, he comes back and just throws them a whole stack of $100 bills. He assumed that that money would then pay for anything that he would need. But Roby told Johnny's family that Johnny was broke. He went so far as to try and explain the different business dealings and what was owed and what wasn't owed and how the music business worked, how per diems worked and how royalties were out there and why there was no money to be had. Where the funds came from to actually support the larger service at the Claiborne Temple is unclear. Yeah, a larger service was probably more fitting for this young man murdered by his own hand. It was appropriate for his friends and family and greater community, his, his fans to be able to support him and, and be there and grieve together. But it was clearly more than what his mother's meager life insurance could cover. Where and how it was paid, who knows. So back to the morning, Johnny's part-time Houston girlfriend who believed herself to be engaged to him came to the service as well. She gave the family her first-hand account of the events of Christmas Day. But when she told them of her engagement status, she was swiftly reprimanded that Johnny was very much married with two children. Olivia later went on to be a bit of a minor celebrity in the press in the ensuing weeks while she recounted repeatedly events of the tragic days of Christmas. St. Clair Alexander, Johnny's brother, claimed that it had been in perfect accordance that his brother would be married to two or three women. He said that some of Johnny's women had to be institutionalized and couldn't even make it to the funeral when they heard the news. Later, in response to a question on whether Johnny Ace had committed suicide, 
She answered, Olivia, that is, no, Johnny's death was an accident. The world didn't owe him anything. He had everything to live for. All he wanted was to be liked by everyone, and that's why he tried so awfully hard to please everyone. Olivia later claimed that he was unusually lovey-dovey on that last day alive and told her, if I ever doubted him, to play pledging my love. David James Mattis, despite being boxed out of his career after helping launch it, had said, Johnny Ace was the nicest, sweetest, quietest little guy. And when he died, I went down to the funeral parlor. I was the only white one there. They brought his body back to Memphis and I was ready to cry. And I saw this great, big, fat, bloated elephant. It was just terrible what had happened. And I thought, God, you really copped out on me. You wouldn't have been all that. And when I thought, ah, I couldn't have changed anything anyway. That's the way it would have been if you were in that business. And that's why I was glad to have gotten out of it. Thoughts? So Roby's already setting up the Johnny Ace band for, you know, he's got his, got his replacement at the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he's ready to go. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's no different than today when an artist dies. They skyrocket, you know, on the charts and, and all this stuff. Everybody's around to make a buck off of them now that they're not here. Tony Morrison died yesterday. My very th first thought was, well, I got to go read Beloved. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's that point when the listener realizes <clears throat> there's not going to be any new stuff from this person, you know, and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you, see, you know, I mean, they're still releasing shit on Hendrix. Yeah. You know, there's always, they're always finding demo tapes, even things that that artist probably doesn't want the world to hear and never did. Yeah, Prince. Yeah, Prince. It's funny because I've got that uh, for the next episode to talk about Hendrix because, I mean, the dude puts out a new record every <laughs> couple years. Yeah. And the single, I guess we'll call it the single, the, the, one, the one track I've heard off the record is a killer song. Like, it's a good song, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Tupac's still playing live. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's easy to point Don Roby as a bad guy or the music business is a bad guy or pop culture is a bad guy or Johnny Ace is the bad guy. or He uh, was doing what anyone would have done. Yeah. Actually, he was doing what anyone with the foresight and the, you know, the single-mindedness of making money would have done. You know, and on some level, you can, you can justify it even in, in not even financial terms. I mean, obviously... Exactly. He wanted to get the biggest church... And even that wasn't big enough for the people who, vol I mean, it wasn't like they were selling seats to the place. You know, it's church, right? So he was, you know, he knew if we had it in the, the church that his dad was the preacher in, that there's no way people could come. So there's, I mean, there's, there is a way that he could sleep at night knowing that, even if it was. Yeah, I agree. Subconsciously, I'm priming for the next stage of something to milk whatever I can out of this guy's career. I don't know if I see it that way. Do you think he was really honoring Johnny Ace? That, with the limited the limited information I have here, it doesn't come across as as that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I get your point. Do you think Johnny or do you think Don Roby cared about Johnny Ace? Uh, no, but once he couldn't make him a dollar, you know what I mean, right? But to my what my I guess what my point is that if someone confronted him and said you're just being shallow about this, his argument could be justified as saying this is what he deserves. This is what he deserves, or you know how he you know. I mean, he probably didn't make any money off the funeral. 
directly. Sure. So, sure, I sure, mean, sure. obviously. You but know, Johnny Ace was in the New York Times. Yeah. For right. For the first time. Right. You know, we don't want to make it that calculated. Right. But there was obviously a next step. Oh, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. So even if he's milking it for every penny. Yeah. But by that same token, we've all been to funerals, right? The funeral of a 90-year-old person is considerably smaller and no less sad, but it affects less people generally than the funeral of a person in their mid-20s, especially a huge nationally known pop star putting hit after hit, right? I mean, um, if someone the contemporary of Johnny Ace died today... You would expect a large service. Sure. Right? I can't remember who it was. Some country star a couple years ago. Was it Merle Haggard maybe? Died and, you know, it was an invitation-only mm-hmm. service at the Ryman, right? You know what I mean? The Ryman seats, I don't know, 3,500 people too, right? Mm-hmm. Boy, so. I know they did that for George Jones, right? I mean, they might have done it for Merle Haggard as well. Yeah. But, you know, the point is is that, like, if, if you guys said, hey, man, we're going to go to George Jones's service, I'd be like, all right, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, even though I didn't know him, you know, he affected my life like in mm-hmm. a very positive way. Like, you know, and you mm-hmm. want to be part of that mourning process. And, you know, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the death of artists that we know. And, it, you know, generally, I have a tendency to be really apathetic about it personally. Like, um, was that R&B star in the late 2000 or late 90s that died Aaliyah is it was that her name mm-hmm. she died in a plane real crash am I remember she did and I remember I had some black co-workers at the time and they were like really sad about it and I was like uh you know I was like I don't know like I didn't really care I didn't know her music and then not not anything about her personally and they were like this is a big huge deal and I'm like I'm sorry you know that you lost like it's there but like I it doesn't mean anything to me I don't know her music it doesn't affect me and sort of the inverse, a handful of years later, when Elliot Smith died under still a cloud. Gruesome of circumstances. Yeah. Did he, did, I mean, it's almost bookends to this story. Did he kill himself? Or did he, did somebody kill him? I mean, mm-hmm. they, right? Yeah. But I, I remember being quite sad when Elliot Smith died and I heard the news and I had, with somebody else in the industry, was like, well, you didn't know him. And I was like, yeah, true. But like, I knew him. If you listen to his music, you knew him. If you listen yeah. to Aaliyah, you know her. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And yeah. I mean, it, I was a massive Nirvana fan at the height of, you know, when Kurt Cobain killed himself. That was the f- that was the first most direct yeah. connection I can make to this. And I was devastated. Yeah, was where devastated. were you? I was in Florida. Yeah. I was in sixth or seventh grade. And I had a poster of him on my wall. Mm-hmm. And I took it down and I put his birth year and his death year underneath it, like wrote his birth year and his death year underneath it and hung it back up on my wall. Hmm. And uh, to the point where my mom was concerned and like actually talked to me about it. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like noticed that I was this upset about it. You know, and he's, he's one of many artists that people really, really gravitate toward that, you know, um, die tragically but for our generation, it was one of those ones. For our generation and the music that we listened to, it was a very poignant time. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was. Well, and well, also, in a parallel to Johnny Ace, it was kind of at the beginning. I mean, Nirvana had been around, but they really hadn't been around that long. No. No, they, but they were already the biggest band in the world. Right. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, to another parallel to Johnny Ace, which is funny, not long before Cobain committed suicide with a gun, he played with a gun in a Rolling Stone uh, 
cover shoot, right? Do you remember those I photos? Don't, I don't remember that. There's photos of him with the band, and he's playing with a gun, and he's got it to his head, and he's, you know, he's very brashly kind of mm-hmm. playing with this gun. It's interesting. So guys like this sort of, well, I say guys, artists like this, they can sort of telegraph it in a way. Yeah. Um, and again, I mean, I stand, I stand uh, firm, and I think that Johnny's was an accident. Kurt Cobain's obviously wasn't. Um, but they still, there's some, there's something about their own mortality at being, being famous or giving, being given opportunity and being looked at and being, you know, put on a, put on a pedestal. There's something that, there that you know affects your psyche and your 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 perception of yourself. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Casey, where were you when um, Kurt Cobain killed himself? Do you remember the moment? Yeah. Uh, well, I remember. I found out it was. I think it was on a Saturday or a Sunday. It was on a weekend. I think because okay. I remember getting a. I was a senior in high school, and I remember one of the girls that I was friends with called me crying, and I hadn't heard about. It. I hadn't seen it on the news. I was out farting around doing something, and I came home and. She called me and was just in tears about it. And I'll, I will admit that I uh, I liked a lot of the Nirvana-esque bands of that era, but Nirvana was not one that I was... I, I mean, I knew a lot about them, but I, of course, I yeah. didn't have any of their records. I listened to Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all that stuff. But um, And it was after that that I started buying the records and going, holy shit, I heard you know these on the radio, but this other stuff, you know... So it didn't really it didn't really affect me as much other than the fact that I had friends calling me crying about it and I realized how important he was and that band was to some of my close friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was on spring break my junior year of high school flying back from Spain after being there for like a week and a half, two weeks or something like that, a week and a half. And uh, I had gone to a Spanish record store and I had bought two records Uh one a Beatles release of uh, Magical Mystery Tour with all it was obviously a mid release and this is actual vinyl that I bought in a Spanish record store in the mid nineteen nineties to put it in context <laughs> and it was all in Spanish and I thought that was neat and uh, and then I bought In Utero huh. uh, and I don't remember if it was like a Spanish or a European release or not I'll have to go look at it at home tonight and uh, I heard it on the news while flying over the Atlantic. And, he just bought this tonight on a plane. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. April, April 94, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, funny thing, I'd also bought an, um, a toy pistol in Toledo. Uh, and I put it just in my bag like I normally would. And then while changing airports in Amsterdam, I got uh, really shaken down by a gigantic cadre of the, like, Dutch immigration team and uh, very heavily questioned because of the gun. Well, what the, of the hell are you doing, man? Why are you putting a gun in your gun in your bag? It was a replica and not real. Apparently, <laughs> the Dutch police needed to hear that, <laughs> and they knew that once they opened my gear. But like, yeah, that was a weird time. <clears throat> uh, so that's our story, right? And think about how much it touched us. And, mm-hmm. Of course, it was just as much real for Johnny Aces fans in the mid 1950s. Absolutely, and in some regards, it's probably even more tragic because of the time. Or not more tragic, but maybe more sensational, right? You know, Kurt Cobain was a heroin addict at home. This wasn't 
in front of 3,500 fans halfway through a set. This wasn't in the middle of a tour. So it's sad, you know, it's hard. And, and um, I think it says a lot about music and art and, um, you know, it's all stupid, dumb stuff for us to whittle our time away and anyway, but it means so much to everyone, sometimes too much, but we invest a lot in the music, in the artists, in the time, in the place. And when this kind of stuff happens, it's stuff you don't forget. Uh, and there's still plenty of women, there's still plenty of men out there alive today, our neighbors, uh, people that we know, or you know, maybe grandparents, people that we know, and, and they have these stories about Johnny Ace, and we've never heard them. I'd like to hear those stories. Mm -hmm. But I guess we're going to keep this episode kind of short and uh, maybe raise a glass of Tennessee whiskey to, to David and the Silver Jews. It's a good bookend.